If you have a Bible, open it to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 10 through 16. And uh, what I shared with you last week that, that I'm going to start doing, um, not for the sake of this series, but for, for a desire to want to really continue to unpack the Word of God and for us to draw from uh, the Word of God when we talk and when I teach, that my uh, heart's desire is that you would understand, one, I'm not making this up, and two, my, my points and, and all of the, the unpacking of is Scripture. Um, and so we're just going to start right out of the gate uh, reading Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, if for you, you missed last week, what that may sound like is just kind of a random place to pick up in the text um, and that's because last week we unpacked um, who elders are. We looked at the qualifications of elders. And in fact, what, what I said, kind of our sentence, was that elders are faithful men who model gospel-centered living to the church. And so in verses 5 through 9, we saw that Paul gave Titus 11 must-be statements that really align with gospel-centered living. And then he also gave them five must not be statements because these things would ruin that type of living in the gospel. And so of those five, if you miss them, I'm just going to cover them quickly that the Paul says they must not be arrogant or quick tempered. They must not be a drunkard. And I was really clear that that, that doesn't mean a brother can't have a good glass of beer, but what it means is that he can't be addicted to it. Okay. He can't be an addict of those things. He can't be violent or greedy for gain. And, and, and I would say that quick-tempered and violent were probably the two more for me that, that I look at if I'm going to bring in elders. Because I think especially with quick-tempered, one of the things I said was that I think two of the primary evidence uh, pieces of evidence of someone who's quick-tempered is one who's full of pride and zealousness for the wrong thing. But then Paul says, these are some of the must-be statements. If you're going to look for elders who are going to lead the church, they must be of these things. And first he said they must be above reproach, a husband of one wife. So he's a one-woman kind of man. Then he also said that, that he must have children that are believers. And I kind of unpacked that because what we see in Scripture, uh, of both the ESV translation that we use and also the King James and the New King James Version would say faithful. And so what I said was, I, I think it's yes and. I think children need to be faithful. I think it's important that they're believers, but what it comes down to for us is that, and the proof for us is that the family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. 
The, the family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. So when I look for men who are going to help me lead our church, I'm not going to say, what seminary did you go to? How many Bible studies have you led? Uh, I, what my first question is, when can I hang out with you and your family? Because that is the proving ground for leadership in the church. If you don't love your kids and love your wife, I don't want you leading this church. And so what that also means for me is my first ministry is to my family. I think we have a jacked up American idea of this. Because the idea is the pastor must kill himself for the building and for the people. But the reality is the first ministry of the pastor, of the elders, of the shepherds, are to minister to their family. Then also, Paul says, he must be God's steward. And he attaches to that that he must be God's steward and above reproach in that. He says being above reproach second. That really he must be a selfless servant. And then also that he must be hospitable. Now, what I really wanted you to understand, because we have a Martha Stewart culture, that has nothing to do with decor, okay? So if a man is hospitable, it doesn't mean that as he invited you into his home, he's made the table pretty, okay? What that word hospitality means is a lover of strangers, That means he loves lost people. He loves to minister to people. It's the kind of guy who would say, I care deeply for your soul and I want to get around you and I want to show that to you. That is the biblical context of hospitality. And then also, Paul says he must be a lover of good and he must be self-controlled. So that means he's not controlled by his flesh. He's controlled by God. He's controlled by the things of God. And then also he must be upright, and he must be holy, and he must be disciplined. And then finally, Paul says that he must hold firm to the truth of the gospel. Now, now let me just say, this is not my notes, but what I loved was that um, both our advisory council, who kind of works as our, our elder board, um, although they're not an elder board, our advisory council and, and also some of the men in our church came up and, and just was like, that's weighty. That, that, I don't feel like I qualify for that. To that, I would say good. I, I think there's some areas where if we say, well, you're disqualified in that, that's bad. But if you don't feel like, man, I'm, I'm completely that guy, but you're in pursuit of that, that's healthy. And so some of those guys are like, man, I need to go work on some of those things. There's, there's some of those things I need to grow in and continue to learn in. And especially this last one, Paul says that they must hold firm to the truth, which is the gospel. So he says that, that they must instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And, and, and what I really clarified for you, because we kind of view the word rebuke as kind of a dirty word um, and uh, sound doctrine as a, as a high religious word. And so we kind of mis- misinterpret these things. It's that what you need is men who, although don't like conflict, they lean into conflict to do these things. So what I clarified for you in that is if, if your elders love conflict, if leaders in the church just love conflict, that's a really bad thing. That's a church I would not want to be a part of. But if they're so gentle that they refuse to get into conflict, so being a, a lover of what people think of them, then that's really a bad thing too. So what you need is men that don't like conflict but aren't afraid to get into it if they have to. So what that means is that they don't want war. They don't want war, but they'll go if they have to. They don't want war, but they'll go if they have to. So now as we've kind of seen from verses 5 through 9, 
Paul's really given us the qualifications of elders. Here's who they are. Here's how elders must be. And now in verses 10 through 16, what we read, Paul gives us the work of the elders, what they do. And so first, Paul really clarifies for us is that elders lean into conflict. Paul gives instruction for elders to intentionally lean into conflict, but it's not conflict with the church It's that they would lean into conflict to protect the church. So there's a difference there. It's not just that they would lean in creating conflict, but for the sake of protecting the church. And in verse 10, Paul tells Titus that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, Paul's not talking about a party of circumcision happening. He's talking about a group of people there. Okay, I would not want to be a part of that party. But... Paul's mentioning those of his party, and he's referring to them, this this group, as circumcised Jews who converted to Christianity, who were trying to really lay before the church an additional doctrine, an additional belief, an extra method or work in their salvation to Jesus. Okay, So what that really looked like was false teachers walking around and saying, Jesus and... Or, yeah, Jesus, but really this. And that is a false teaching that completely contradicts the gospel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But what I want you to remember, think about this. Titus was an example of someone who had experienced the truth of the gospel and was free from that Mosaic law. And so Titus was was well-equipped to understand the group that was contradicting the gospel. And in fact, he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem during the controversy over circumcision. And so this would not have been Titus's first rodeo. He, he would have understood how this was all going to go down and what they were preaching against. And, and, and that interaction of him going with Paul, you can uh, read in Acts 15 and also in Galatians 2. But what this tells us, what Paul's really telling the leaders of the church and that what we can glean from as a church is that we need to test every spirit, every false teaching with the word of God. I would say not only false teaching, but godly teaching. We need to test it. In fact, John told this to the church in 1 John 4, 1. He said, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here's the deal. The word of God is a gift to us that helps us discern and know what is from God and what is not from God, what is of God and what is not of God. So even when I teach, I want you to understand this. I want you to test and see if what I'm saying is God's word. Okay, a little clarification. What I don't mean by that is that you check out while I talk and go Google a bunch of things I said to try and start an argument with me, okay? Don't send me an email about something that we're just gonna get jacked up and off track on. But test intentionally what I'm saying, that it is from the word of God. Is it not from the word of God? We need to talk about that. That that's why for myself, at the first thing that I say that I think many of you could quote, if, if someone said, what are the first couple words out of, the, out, of, out of your pastor's mouth when he gets up to teach? It would be, hey, good morning, how are we? If you have a Bible, open to, and there's your text. I want you to almost feel repetitiveness in that so that you understand where we begin and what we unpack and where we go from is 
the word of God. I don't make up what I'm saying here as I read it to you out of my physical Bible, my personal Bible. I want us to understand the weightiness of the word of God. And so that's why I also encourage you to bring your Bible, why we make Bibles available. But, amen, indeed. But here's the reality. There are many false teachers in our day and in our time, and it's not just one party as Titus was dealing with in Crete, Paul talks a lot about to many of his other let, in many of his other letters about false teachers and false prophets and false spirits and all of these things. But in our culture here, just in, in America, if we just look here, there's many false teachings and, and, and teachings on both sides of the spectrum. And so what that means really is you've got kind of, you've got multiple groups, but I would say two of the dominant ones are kind of the prosperity gospel movement, and you've also got the hyper-religious movement, okay? And so I really want you to understand, I'm not going to stand up here and judge a bunch of people, but I want you to understand there is such a thing as the truth and the false of a gospel someone's trying to preach, and so really my original plan to, to really, uh, as a concern for you, as a desire for you to grow in the word, I, I really plan to just call out names of those that I would really believe to be false teachers. Now, what I did during the week was I, I prayed a lot about that. I researched rigorously, which if you've ever uh, really uh, done work around studying false teaching, it, it's, it's painful it's ugly. It's not fun. And so I don't do that because I'm, I'm all of a sudden like, oh, I'd love to know. I, I do that for your sake because I want to know what are the false teachings around us that are af- affecting us. But I don't believe what's best for you in this time is for me to, to just throw out a ton of names and not give clarity to that. And so I, I do not believe that God's uh, allowed me to move into that space. Okay? I, I just don't believe that. I believe that's appropriate for some. There's many who I would say, yeah, call, call that name out. But there's more that I want you to hear the truth. I, I'm not going to focus on the counterfeit, but I want you to understand there is counterfeit out there. And, and so this is not a cowardly decision, but what I want to do is really be humble in this and submissive to God in this. And I will tell you that, I mean, I sat with our council. I said, here's, the, here's some of the names I'm going to bring up. And they're like, we, we've got your back. So it's not a point of saying I don't want to say names. But what I'd rather do than, than just throw out a ton of names for you to hear and check out it is really for us to focus on the truth. Now, if you come up to me after, I'm going to full-on tell you those names, but I think there's a better context than how to do that. Rather than you listening, me talking, and me throwing a bunch out there, I'd rather be in relationship with you over that, and I would fear for our, uh, our podcast listeners as well the, the concern of that there's no relationship around that. Okay, So that's my own conviction. It's not a cowardly thing. If you want to come talk about it, we, I, can may, I can give you a list. But my heart in it as your pastor, as a shepherd, is someone who is concerned for your soul. I want you to understand that. And so addressing false teaching, as Paul does, it is very difficult to do well. That there's many teachings out there that would consider their message. They themselves would communicate, this is a Christian message. But if we were to look closer in on that, we would see a false and very harmful contradicting gospel. And so first, what we need to understand when we speak of false teachers and false doctrines, we need to understand we're talking about the core essential doctrines of the faith. 
Now, I'm going to unpack doctrine a little bit more next week and what sound doctrine is, but what we're talking about is doctrine specifically related to the core message that a person is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so really the motivation of of communicating these things and talking about and being concerned for false teaching is it's for the health of the church, that we would not be immature believers swayed to and fro by all of these false teachings. And, and some of the, the things that are, that are kind of harmful is they, they really appear to be good. They really appear to be good. There's, there's all these quotes on, on Facebook and Instagram and on people's Pinterest page. But, but if you really look deeper into that, there's a very harmful false teaching there. And, and so what really needs to take place is a clarity of how, how do we call that out? How do we discern and then also, the, the desire of this as a leader of elders, what I think Paul's really after is that it's for not only the health of the church, but even for the soul of the person in error. That in calling them out, it wouldn't just be to reject them and throw them out, but if you're gonna, if you're gonna continue on in this, you're gonna continue on in sound doctrine. So, so let's go this way in it. So I believe what we need to do is we need to ask some honest questions that will help us discern the difference between the true gospel and the false teachings of a very false gospel that we would not find in Scripture. And so I have four questions for you to consider. If you're someone who takes notes, I'd encourage you, write these down and ask these questions as you hear these teachings. The first question is, do they display humility and godly character? So what's the motivation of their teaching? What's the underlying motivation of why they're teaching this? Paul would say some of the characteristics and some of the behavior of those teaching the false message is that they were insubordinate, they were empty talkers, and they were deceivers. And meaning, really, that they were more given to talk than practical, true, and genuine religion. And so they weren't honest at all. They were seeking to deceive others, and in doing so, they were even breaking apart families, and they're doing so. So then also we need to ask, what do they say about Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? I think John 14, 6 lays it out very clearly that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So John 14, 6 would be clear. It's by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And if anyone would preach that Jesus is a way and not the only way, that would be a clear false teaching that contradicts Scripture. And then also, as they, as they preach, do they preach the gospel, but more clearly, do they preach the gospel in full biblical context? So do they, not, not just sharing a piece of the gospel, hey, the cross is great, but the whole narrative of the gospel. Paul shared with the church in Corinth of the utmost importance in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel would be preached in its entirety. And so even one of my favorite pastors uh, talks about a, uh, an illustration where he, he brought people to hear this great speaker who would teach and as this man taught, he used an illustration of handing a rose around the room of uh, thousands of people. And, and by the time it got up there, the, the whole point of his, his uh, message was really that your behavior needs to change because God doesn't want broken and ugly things. 
And so he grabbed the rose and he just made that narrative that who would want this? Who would want this? And, uh, and I think what's clear of the gospel is that God wants this. God wants, that's why God's been in pursuit of a bunch of busted up sinful people. Now, is there repentance needed in that? Absolutely. But that is not the full gospel to point the finger towards a moralistic kind of way of this is what we have to preach. That's void of the complete narrative of the gospel. And so let me say this. No one, not even myself, has the right to change the message that God has given us. And so I would be very concerned if someone says, well, I'm just going to share a piece of this, but not really share this. And I'm going to take this scripture, but I'm going to pull it out of its context for my own regard. That would concern me. And then also, I think we need to ask, does what they say, and let me clarify, does what they say in entirety line up with scripture? Does what they say completely line up with scripture? Now, the reason why I say entirely is because someone could go online and pull a two-minute clip of something I said and take it out of context and claim that I'm a preacher in error. You see this all over the ugliness of the interwebs, okay? And so the reality is we need to look entirely at what they're saying. So that means we have to open our Bibles, we need to examine, we need to search, and we need to pray. So we need to discern what is false because there are those who are preaching this gospel that doesn't line up with Scripture. So does what they say in entirety line up with Scripture? Now here's the reality is that the greatest antidote to false teaching for us to discern and stand against is a deep understanding and experiencing of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why Paul made it clear that as elders lean into conflict, they need to hold firm to the gospel. That they need to hold firm to the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. But here's the reality. News can only be good if it invades bad space. Okay? News can only be good if it invades bad space. Because if everything's good, there's no reason for good news. Okay? Everything's fine. That's just another thing. But the reality is the gospel begins with, with, with some bad news. The gospel in and of itself is the good news that Jesus Christ, who came to earth, came to reconcile us while we were sinners, allowing those who believe to have right standing before God, not because we did at one point, not because everything was, not because everything is good, but that there is bad news that we had walked away from God and having an intimate relationship with him that for those who believe would walk in a new life in Christ. So this is what Paul reminds Titus of in verse 9 earlier, that this is what the elders must hold on to because without the gospel, all we have is our own effort and all we have is our own works. And so this is the good news of the gospel, that you and I have right standing before God. So it's, it's not by our efforts, it's not by our works, it's not by our skills, how good we do following less of this or more of that, but it's, it's all based on the foundation of an incredible, loving, and merciful God that has pursued busted up sinful people like you and I. This is the good news of the gospel. 
And so the true gospel of the Bible that I just want to unpack, unpack systematically for you is that the one and only God who is holy made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and we cut ourselves off from him. And in his great love, God sent his son Jesus to come as king and rescue us from our enemies and most significantly, our own sin. And so Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life. And then willingly, think about this, willingly for the will of the Father goes to the cross and dies to bear all of God's wrath that belonged to us on himself in our place. And then he rose from the grave in order to give us eternal life. And so John 3.16 is one of those verses for me that, that we all know is one of the most simple but yet most powerful gospel presentations that Jesus gives himself in the New Testament. And, and I think when, when we all look at, at John 3.16, we all have different backgrounds. That for many, you, you already have recited that verse in your mind. You, you already know what I'm about to say that John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That truth is powerful. That truth is eternal. And so for some of us, we kind of grew up in Sunday school, kind of listening to this message, or we had friends who grew up in Sunday school who hammered this lesson into our head because they were memorizing it. Or for some they have no idea what the truth of that means. And so let me just say this. I don't know what enslaves you, whatever has mastered you, whatever you feel weighed down by, but by the sin and by, by the shame of whatever you're walking through and, and whatever is ruling you right now. But let me just tell you what, what is found in the narrative of this text. Jesus has come to free you. He's come to free you that by the grace of God, you would walk with him in a brand new life. Okay? So I, I don't know if you get the weight and the power and the freedom of the gospel, but let's just look at the cross. Let's just look at the cross that Jesus absorbed it all. So the reason why Paul can so clearly say in, in Romans Chapter 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's because the debt has been paid in full. So there's no condemnation for those who follow Jesus. The debt has been paid in full. And so as that debt is paid in full, what we're called to is to believe and to walk in a new life of this gospel living. That's why Paul says later in Romans chapter 10, Verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So Paul makes it clear, elders need to lean into conflict and they need to hold firm to this gospel. And the reason for that, as these leaders do that, they need to do that for the growth of the believers. Now, one of the things we looked at last week was that the type of, of men 
who make good elders in the church are the, are the kind of men who have answered the call to go and die, to give themselves to the church for the growing and maturing of the people of God for the glory of God. And let me just clarify that difference because really in, in the, the Gospels being, not the Gospel message, but the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in that we see that Jesus really preaches two kinds of messages, come and see, go and die. And so the men who would be elders in the church are those who have responded to that costly call of discipleship of going and dying to themselves for the sake of the gospel. Because the role of an elder is to care for the people of God. And this is also what the Bible would call shepherding. Shepherding. That a shepherd or, or elder or a pastor is one who is focused on teaching believers to grow in being mature disciples that grow in following Christ and discipling others. And so when we look at leaders in the church, this is what they do. But for some of us, I, I know we talked about this last week as well, some of us grew up with leadership in the church and it went really bad. We have this idea that, that an elder board is kind of those that operate outside the authority of Christ and the authority of the Godhead, and they're just kind of going, do what I say. And so for some of us, we kind of had this off in the distance kind of, that's the Jedi council. They do what they want. They do what they, whatever they believe. And, and, and that just carried too much power. They abused the power. They weren't really even necessarily the right men. But godly leaders in the church are the kind of leaders that all people, the people of God, will grow under. That the people of God will grow under. That as the church submits to their leadership, they are submitted to God's leadership. That, that piece is important. That as the church submits to the leadership of the elders, that the elders are submitted to the leadership of God. And from that, what begins to happen is a growing towards being a gospel-centered church. And so, as we come to a close, what I just want to share with you um, is just what I believe my role gets to be in that, to help you grow, to be a, a shepherd. And so let me just tell you, you first, first off, I love you. I love you. I care for you deeply. I pray for you often. And my care for you is from a soul level. And so I want to see you grow up in Christ, that you would grow in deep relationship with him. And so one of the things that I get to do as the shepherd, the, the pastor, the leader of this church is that I get to study the word to guide us through that and to pray for you often and to meet with you. And so if you don't know that, that's one of my primary spiritual gifts is shepherding. And I don't say that of, oh, look at my giftings, but I just say that for clarity, I want you to understand my passion behind that, my desire behind that for you, that it's one of my greatest passions next to preaching, to meet with the people of God and see them grow in Christ, that I want to help you, that we would all grow in maturity. And even if that means that there, there's something to confront that's harmful or unhealthy or ungodly for you, that for the sake of the gospel, I want to speak the truth and lead you in that truth so that we both grow. And so what we've kind of seen from Paul as we, 
as we conclude today, is up to this point, Paul's really focused on the leadership of the church. He's focused on instructing Titus. He's focused on instructing elders and what their qualifications are and what they do in that. But next week, he's going to share with what the people of God do. What growth in the church looks like for the people of God. So think on what this means. Think on what this means for you to be growing in the gospel and in your walk with Jesus. Just want to lay this before you for you to consider that what it means is that you would grow into being mature disciples that grow in following Christ and discipling others. And so as Paul gives this to the elders that they would lean into conflict and hold firm to the gospel for the growth of the believers, this is also something for you and I to apply in our own lives and in our homes, that we would lean into conflict for the sake of our families, that we would hold firm to the gospel, not laying before our our families a, a false message of behavioral modification with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled over, but that we'd hold firm to the gospel for the growth of the believers. Let's pray.